17, the last couple, three verses there, starting at verse 24. There should be an outline in your uh, bulletin. If you didn't get one and you want to get one now, feel free to get up and grab one. Or there are printed messages that have a lot of um, verses, and I put in there a couple of websites that you can go to for further study on certain points I'll raise. So you can access those either in the hard copy or on the church website. Jesus is still praying for us. As we saw in verse 20, he's not asking on behalf of the disciples alone, but for those who believe in him through their word, and that's you and me. And he wraps up his prayer in verse 24 by saying, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known so that the love with with which you love me may be in them and I in them. You know, with all the wonderful blessings we enjoy as, as Christians, I often wonder why people aren't just beating down the door of every evangelical church in the country and, and saying, what must I do to be saved? Um, you know, it, It's just amazing that the world does not see the blessings of being believers. Even when we have to face difficult trials, I think of that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and says, didn't we throw three men in? Now there are four, and I believe the Lord Jesus was standing there in the flames, fellowshipping with those men, in that time of intense trial, and he is with us in every trial as we've sung here this morning. Uh, He's there to comfort us when we lose loved ones. He is there to sustain us even when we face death ourselves. And then when we leave this life, we have the wonderful hope and promise of being forever with the Lord in glory with all of the saints And all of the angels, I mean, you think about the Christian life and you have to ask, what is there not to love? I mean, it is amazing the blessing upon blessing upon blessing that God pours out upon us. And the fact that unbelievers are not just seeking and begging, what can I do to to have the same blessing, only affirms what the Bible teaches, that they are spiritually blind, that their hearts are hardened until God opens them to the truth. Now, our Lord is wrapping up this marvelous high priestly prayer that in one of the rarest privileges of the Bible, we get to listen in on Jesus praying right before he goes to the cross. I can't imagine uh, anything greater. There are other parts of the New Testament where I wish we had just known a little bit more. What did he say there? You know, when in the end of Luke, he opens the scriptures to them, and I would have loved to have been there, but the Holy Spirit saw fit not to include that in scripture, 
But here we get to uh, eavesdrop on his prayer. And he is outlining in these final verses the blessings that are poured out on us in this life plus the inestimable, inestimable, that's a hard word to say, blessing of being with him forever in heaven. And so he's saying, if you've come to Christ as your Savior and Lord, then you have these wonderful blessings now plus you have the certainty of being with him in heaven to see his glory. Now, Jesus, first of all, mentions heaven and then the blessings. And I'm going to turn that around and mention the blessings first and then heaven. So we're going to take it in reverse order of the text and look at verses 25 and 26 first. And then we'll look at verse 24. But focusing on verses 25 and 26, we see that if you've come to Christ as your Savior and Lord, that you have all these wonderful blessings now. And Jesus mentions two here in our text. The first one is, if you have come to Christ, then you know the righteous Father through Jesus Christ. And here I'm on verse 25 and the first part of verse 26. He prays, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known. There's a repetition of a word there, isn't there? Uh, he's talking about knowing Christ, knowing God. Uh, if you've never read J.I. Packer's Knowing God, may I encourage you to put that on your so-called spiritual bucket list. I mean, do it sooner rather than later, and you will be blessed. It is not an easy read. I remember when I read it, I read a chapter and thought, that's all I can handle. You know, you just got to chew on that for a while, and then you take the next one. But it's a spiritual classic. And he begins that book by quoting at length, um, and I have condensed it here, but I'm going to read it for you, but quoting at length the first sermon that a young 20-year-old preacher by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached at the New Park Street Chapel in London on January 7th, 1855. Now, imagine a 20-year-old preaching what I'm going to read you here. He began, It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe that it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father, his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, we turn away with the thoughts that vain man would be wise with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. 
no subject of contemplation will tend to humble the mind more than the thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods this narrow globe. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, the subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is, in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial, as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Well, I can't even begin to compare with the 20-year-old's eloquence and the way he spoke. And if you've ever read Spurgeon's sermons, that's just the tip of the iceberg. But, you know, the point he's making is the topic that our Lord introduces here. And that is, we need to know our God. And there is nothing as great as knowing God. Remember at the beginning of this prayer in verse 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life, what? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And so knowing God is really the definition of eternal life. And throughout eternity, we won't get to the bottom where we can say, got that one down, you know, because God is infinite. But that is the essence of of eternal life. And Jesus here draws a distinction between the world that has not known God, and that is the main problem with the world, they don't know God, and those who know the Father through faith in Jesus. Now, it's important to understand we cannot know God through philosophy or speculation. I was a philosophy major in college, and uh, They sit around and speculate. Most of them, of course, don't even believe in God. But those who may, well, I think he's like this. And I think there's wisdom in this faith and wisdom in this faith. And we put them all in the pot and come up with the conglomerate wisdom. And that's the way the philosophers go, speculation on speculation. But the natural man who is born not of the Spirit of God, but born in darkness, his heart hardened, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 and in Romans 1 and in Ephesians 4. So the point is this. We can know God one way only, through revelation, not through speculation. For example, Jesus in Luke 10.22 said this, All things have been handed over to me, By my Father. There's a claim of deity right there. And then he adds, And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. 
So Jesus has to will to reveal the Father to us before we can even get a handle on who God is. And in this prayer earlier, in verse 6, Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So he doesn't manifest the Father's name to everyone, but only to uh, those whom God has chosen to give to him, to Jesus. And then in verse 26 of our text, he repeats it. I have made your name known to them. And so the only way we can know God is through Jesus Christ who has revealed him to us, his name. And through faith in Christ, of course, we receive the Holy Spirit and the Spirit illumines our minds, opens our eyes to understand the Scripture so that we know something, at least, of God's name. Again, the subject is infinite, and we'll never get to the place we can say, I know him perfectly, but we can begin to know the living and true God. Now, his name refers, of course, to his attributes and his character. And here, Jesus picks out one aspect or two of his character when he addresses him as righteous father. That's a unique address to God in all of the Bible. You can look through all of Scripture and no one else ever prays, O righteous father. Now, maybe you had a very harsh and rules-oriented father, and so you go, yeah, that makes sense. But, you know, I, when I think of God as Father, I think of like Psalm 103, verse 13, where David says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So Father, to me, speaks of the tenderness, the, the compassion, the understanding of God who, who embraces his children warmly. And so then you combine righteous father and it almost grates on you like it jars you. Huh? How do you put those together? But Jesus brings them together because, you know, father wants me to run into his arms and and have him embrace me. Righteous makes me kind of draw back like Isaiah when he got that great vision of God and the angels were saying, holy, holy, holy is, is the Lord God of hosts. And I want to cry out then with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So there's a tension, I see there, in righteous Father. And here Jesus brings them together. It means this, God is not unrighteous when he withholds revealing himself to rebellious sinners. They deserve what they get if they do not repent. And their punishment is just. At the same time, God is perfectly righteous in imputing the very righteousness of Christ to sinners who put their trust in Christ. It's what Romans chapter 3 and the book of Galatians and other scriptures are all about. That Christ bore our righteous punishment, the just punishment of God on the cross. And so God is perfectly just in dismissing the charges against us, which are many, because a substitute bore them. 
Christ bore them. If I can quote again from Dr. Packer in Knowing God, he says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And so knowing God as the righteous Father is at the heart of salvation. It begins there, but then it continues throughout our lives and I'm going to say throughout all eternity. You notice in verse 26, Jesus continues. He says that, He will continue to make it, that is God's name, known to us. Now, what's he talking about? Well, I believe he's talking about the very next day when he would die on the cross and he makes the love of God known on the cross greater than any other event in human history. If you want to see the love of God, go to the cross. It is shown there. But then... Beyond that, I believe he's referring to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the church. And so now, as you get into the Word of God, depending on the Spirit of God, praying to him to open your eyes, it is a wonderful unfolding of the attributes of God from Genesis to Revelation. You come to know over and over and deeper and deeper who God is. He reveals his name. In 1 John 3, 1, the Apostle John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Or the prophet Hosea in Hosea 6, 3 exhorted, So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. And I believe that was behind Paul in Philippians 3. Paul had been a believer about 25 years. Certainly he's at the head of the pack of believers who knew the Lord. And yet there he says, I I haven't laid hold of it yet, but I press on. And his goal, he says, is that I may know him, that I may know Christ Jesus, my Lord. I, I don't know anyone famous or important in the world. Maybe some of you do. But you know, if you know somebody that in the world's eyes is really famous or important, I think you would, number one, count that a great privilege. And number two, if that person invited you to come, you know, to the White House or to Congress or wherever this important person hung out and spend time with him, you would go, wow, I'll be there. You know, it would be a great privilege to spend that time with that person. Well, the God of the universe, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, invites you, know me. I'm going to show you the Father, he says, and I'm going to make it known more. It's an ongoing process. 
and he invites you to do it. And so we should just be eager to open the word of God every morning, every day, every chance we get, get into the word, chew on it, meditate it with the prayer, oh God, I want to know you better. I want to know you. That's the first great privilege. Then he mentions a second privilege. And that is, if you've come to know Christ, you enjoy the infinite love of God and the indwelling presence of Christ. Notice again, verse 26, Jesus says, I have made your name known to them and I will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Now, last time we saw up in verse 23, the staggering truth that the father loves us to the same degree that he loves his own son. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. That's what Jesus said there. And um, Paul in Ephesians 3 combines these two ideas of God's love and of Christ dwelling in us when he prays. Ephesians three seventeen to 19, he says, I pray that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith, and that being root, you, he says to the Ephesians, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which he adds, surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Again, wow, that prayer is one you could chew on for a lifetime that you might have Christ dwelling in your heart by faith so that you might know his unknowable love. And so Christ dwells in our hearts and we enjoy his presence. We enjoy the ever-experiencing, deep-deepening experience of God's love. And I hope you understand, we're not talking here about head knowledge. We're talking about heart experience of Christ. Do you know that? You know, sometimes I'll be honest, I think, I'll I'll read a passage like Ephesians 3 and I think, I'm not even in kindergarten. (laughs) In terms of knowing Christ dwelling in me by faith and knowing this love that he's talking about and I just feel like I'm a little preschooler getting started in the school of Christ And I think, oh, Lord, you know, here I've been seeking you for all these years, and I don't even feel like I've gotten into grade one yet. But that should be our our, uh, experience, that Christ lives in me, and that through him I am beginning to experience this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, maybe you're thinking, Well, wait a minute, you know, you're talking about this great love of Christ, but if Christ loves me that much, how come I'm going through all these trials? Some of you are. Some of you have some pretty, pretty difficult trials. And it's a fair question. If he loves me, why am I going through these trials? Well, think about it. He loves you as he loves his son. When Jesus came to this earth, did he have health and wealth? Hey, we're king's kids. We're victorious. You know, no trials. Instant healing. You know, we're all millionaires. Claim it by faith. No, not exactly. That's not a description of the life of Christ. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, whom we could not recognize. You know, Jesus came to this earth as a suffering servant. And that did not mean the Father did not love him. The Father loved Jesus infinitely, eternally. And yet, we read in Hebrews that even Jesus was perfected through the suffering, the sorrows, the troubles that he had to go through. And so, you know, it's not the health and wealth thing. Paul, at the end of Romans 8, says we might face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and even the sword, martyrdom. But he says, I'm convinced none of these things can separate us from the great love of God for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we have to believe by faith there. And you know, as we sang in that one song this morning, it is especially when you're in the fiery furnace, when you're in the trials, that you come to experience the presence and the love of Christ on a deeper level. Have you, have you known that? I, I was going through a terrifically difficult time, one of the most difficult times in all the years of ministry in California. I was very discouraged. And I don't get revelations or anything like that. But one night I sat down on the edge of the bed and I was feeling depressed and discouraged. And out of the blue, Acts 18, 9 and 10 popped into my mind. I I had not been reading Acts. I didn't know what it was. It just popped into my mind. And I grabbed my Bible. It was there on the bedstand and opened it up. And Paul was in Corinth. And he was really getting beat up. And the Lord appeared to Paul by night and said, don't be afraid any longer, Paul, but go on preaching and don't be silent. And then the Lord added this, for I am with you and no man will harm you. So go on preaching. And it was just a word of encouragement that flooded my soul right there to say, you know, I'm with you. Just keep the course, keep doing it. And I'm not going to abandon you. And it's at those times of trial that we know that. It was when the disciples were in the storm at sea. Jesus came walking to them on the water and calmed the storm. You know, it's that kind of thing. David Livingston, the pioneer missionary to Africa, who he went through all kinds of hardships, but he at one point in his life received an honorary doctorate from the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And he got up to speak, and you could just tell looking at him, he was haggard, he was gaunt. His left arm hung useless because he had been mauled by a lion. I mean, the man had suffered. And he said this, Would you like me to tell you what supported me? Through all the years of exile among a people whose language I could not understand and whose attitude toward me was often uncertain and often hostile, it was this, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. On these words, I staked everything. And then he adds, and they never failed. They never failed. The Lord is with us in the trial. Now, maybe still you're thinking, well, I know that God loves me, and I know that Christ is always with me, but I don't always experience that. I, You know, I, I struggle, so is there anything I can do? And I came across this uh, 
illustration from Thomas Manton, who was a a Puritan. J.C. Ryle cited it in his expository thoughts on the Gospels. Manton said this, If an earthly king lie but one night in a house, what care is taken there that nothing be offensive to him and that all be neat and sweet and clean? How much more careful ought you to be to keep your hearts clean, to perform service acceptable to him, to be in the exercise of faith, love, and other graces, so that you may entertain as you ought your heavenly king who comes to take up his continual abode in your hearts. So in other words, if Christ lives in you, you've got a clean house and, and make it presentable a place where he is welcome. And if you're still saying, well, my heart is still cold, when my heart is that way, I always take encouragement in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And you say, well, yeah, but I've got sin in my life. Keep reading. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and the Lord will beat him up. Is that what it says? No, thank God, no. Let him return to the Lord, I love this, and he will have compassion on him. There's the Father. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There's the invitation. Come to the Lord. So, knowing the righteous Father and enjoying His infinite love along with the indwelling presence of Christ are just some of the innumerable blessings. Paul in Ephesians 1.3 says, we've been blessed with every blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. These are just some of them. But there's a saying, you ain't seen nothing yet, and that would apply here because the best is yet to come. And that points us back to verse 24 where we see the truth that if you've come to Christ then you have the certainty of being with him someday in heaven to see his glory. See verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may also see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Three things I can point out here briefly. First of all, note that heaven is a certainty for all whom the Father has given to his Son. When Jesus here says, Father, I desire, it's a Greek word that means, this is my will. And it's a startling phrase because Christ doesn't very often express his will to the Father. You remember when he was in the garden, which is just a few minutes after this prayer, in Luke 2, 22, 42, he said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. And then he quickly adds, yet, Not my will, but yours be done. But here Jesus expresses his will to the Father. And of course, the the Father's will and Christ's will are in complete harmony. We saw this back in John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40. Uh, To read that again, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Same phraseology is here, those whom the Father has given him. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, notice, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, how can I know if I'm one that the Father has given to the Son? Well, our text tells us all that the Father has given the Son will come to Jesus. Have you come to Jesus? Jesus says, they all will believe in me. Have you believed in Christ? Then you can be assured of the certainty that his will, his promise will not fail. If you don't make it to heaven, having believed in Christ, God's a liar. Christ is mistaken. He's a failure. And that's impossible. And so on the word of Christ, if you have come to him and you have believed in him, then you will be with him someday to see his glory. That's his word. The second thing to note is that the best thing about heaven will be to be with Jesus and to see his glory. You know, the best part about heaven isn't going to be to see golden streets and walk on them. And uh, it's not going to be to see all your loved ones, although that will be wonderful. And it's not going to be to meet all of the great saints down through history, although that's going to be fascinating too. The greatest thing about being in heaven is we will see Jesus. We will see Jesus. And that is our great hope. And that truth is repeated over and over again in the New Testament. Let me just hit a few of the verses. Luke 23, 43, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. He said that to the thief on the cross who repented. Isn't that great? Not just today you'll be in paradise. I'll see you up there sometime in a thousand years. Today you will be with me in paradise. Or John 14, 3, in this upper room discourse, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, notice, and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We will be with Jesus. Philippians 1, 23, Paul says, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very, uh, that is very much better. 2 Corinthians 5.8, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home, notice, with the Lord, to be with the Lord. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord and in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord, that's heaven, to be with the Lord. Or in Revelation 22, 3 and 4, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. And they will see his face. We'll see his face. And I didn't put it in here, but in 1 John 3, you know, when we see him, we will be like him. Being with Jesus is the heart of heaven. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, once said, when he gets to heaven, he said, I want to spend a thousand years with Jesus, and then I'm going to say, oh, where's Paul? (laughs) And what he meant was, the best part about being in heaven isn't going to be see the apostle Paul. It's going to be to see Jesus. 
and to be with him. Uh, Do you long for that? To be with Jesus, to see his glory, what will it be? And I'll just say this, I don't mean to rebuke, but if you're not spending time in his word now, seeking his face, it kind of indicates you're not that excited about seeing him. Because that's where we encounter Jesus now. From Genesis to Revelation, he is in his word. And uh, maybe you're wondering too, well, how can billions and billions of believers be personally with Jesus in heaven? And my answer is, I have no clue. Except that God is able to do the impossible. I don't know how that's going to work. But I don't think there will be any, uh, yeah, you got an appointment in a million years. I'll see you then. Uh, No, that's human. Somehow, in the infinite aspect of his person, we will all be there with him. I love the old hymn. We never sing it anymore. It's kind of outdated, I guess. I sing it in private. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face. What will it be when with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ, who died for me? Face to face. And then finally, another joy of heaven is that it's going to be a place where we see and we experience the Father's infinite love. Jesus says that the glory that the Father gave him stems from the fact that he loved him before the foundation of the world. And I confess, here I am in way over my head because we are peering into the relationship between the Father and the Son in eternity. But there is an infinite expression of love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit in all of eternity in the interrelations of the Trinity. And... We're going to see that in heaven. We're going to be able to see the love that the Father has for the Son. And then that love is going to be perfected in all the saints. That that love, Jesus says, may be in them and I in them. I reread this week a wonderful sermon by Jonathan Edwards in preparation for this. It's called Heaven is a World of Love. And I put the uh, URL on the notes there. You can access it and read it online if you'd like. But Edwards just pictures what a marvel it will be in heaven that it will be a world of love. Because all we know down here is imperfect love. Even though we strive to love one another, sometimes we grate on one another. And sometimes we have misunderstandings and we have hurts and Somebody does something to wrong us. And all of that's going to be gone. And heaven will be a place where the perfect love of God is manifested. We'll see it between the members of the Godhead. And it will be between all the saints. No jealousy, no rivalry, no hatred, no, no snide comments, no put-downs. All a world of love. What a, a, an amazing thing it will be. The upper room discourse began with love in John 13, 1. It said, having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. And it ends with love in John 17, 24, and 26. Jesus mentions the Father's eternal love for him and then his prayer that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them.
Have you ever read the Heidelberg Catechism? It's good. You ought to read it. It's online too. You can get it. But it begins with this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Think about that. What is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer it gives. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And so, as those who have been given by the Father to the Son, we enjoy the blessings of salvation now, and we enjoy the joys of heaven ahead. I mean, what more could you ask for? Let's bow together. Dear Father, thank you for the many wonderful promises of your word. I pray especially for those, Lord, who are going through difficult trials right now, that your presence would be so real to them that they would look back and say, let me back into that fiery furnace where I saw Jesus. Let me in the stormy sea where he came walking to me on the water. Lord, I pray that we all would know you, the living and true God, deeper and deeper every day, that that would be our quest, that we all would experience the infinite love that you have for your son, Jesus, that it would be in us, and that we would be living every day, looking ahead to the great hope of being with Jesus in heaven, with all sorrow gone, all tears wiped away, Death is banished, and we will have infinite joy and bliss with you throughout all eternity. And I pray, Lord, if any are here who are outside the blessings because they do not know you, that you would open their eyes to see the invitation. Come, come to the waters and drink. Let him who is thirsty come that it's open to all and that they would come and enjoy the blessings of your salvation. For Jesus' sake, I ask. Amen. We're going to conclude by uh, taking an offering and if